If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open to John 15. And just so everybody knows, I don't think I've ever asked any one of the singers to move my stuff over for me. They just kind of do it instinctually. So thank you for that. I know I'm a prima donna, but not in that particular way. All right? So we've been in John 15 for a few weeks now, and um, if you didn't realize it already, if you, I am hoping and assuming you're reading John 15 at home and kind of studying it as we're uh, getting ready for each week. But if you didn't know this, uh, John 15 can kind of be divided up into three chunks. And so uh, what we saw last week and the week before that is that the first part of John uh, 15 in verses 1 through 11, we see the relationship between uh, the vine and the branches, right? And if you don't know the song, you're missing out, but he's the vine and we're the branches, and there's a whole dance to that. Uh, that's where we spent our time over the last couple Sundays looking at what God wants for us. Like, what does God dream about for us? And, and so that's what we looked at. And, and then um, we, we said that what God wants for us is summed up in what we call the triumvirate, or the, the three parts of love, joy, and peace. And we asked the question, like, who wouldn't want that, right? Everybody Everybody would want that if that was actually attainable for them. Uh, and, and in a world of anxiety and fear and hate, uh, we're just asking the question, who wants to live a life of love, joy, and peace? And we think that's a pretty uh, appealing invitation in our world. And so we said that the way to that life that you see in John 15, 1 through 11, is simple. It's abiding with Jesus, staying with Jesus, being with him. Uh, and, and after being with him, you begin to do what he would do. And so that, that's what it means to be a follower, a learner, a disciple of Jesus. And so that's the relationship between us and Jesus, the, the relationship between the vine and the branches. Uh, then the last section of this chapter of John's gospel in John 15, 18 through 27, uh, is really a view of the relationship between the branches and the world, or, or us as followers of Jesus, uh, those who know and love him, and the relationship we have with the rest of the world. And, and so that's the ending of this chapter that we're going to dive into next week. But today, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 27 of John 15. Uh, and so go ahead and open up 15, 12 through 27. If you, uh, maybe if you're watching online, you don't know your Bible. The big numbers are the chapters and the small ones are the verses. So John chapter 15, verses 12 through 27. And we're going to focus on the relationship of the branches to one another. So it's one of those one another type ideas. And so uh, to use language that we've used before, John 15 um, can be broken up into those categories we've talked about of up, in, and out, right? The first part of John 15 is the branches and the vine, the up. This part is the in, the branches to one another. And then next week, we're going to look at the out, sort of our relationship to the world. And so I'm going to ask Hannah to come on up, and she's going to read to us uh, that text. And then we will hit on just a few points together. Help me turn that on for you. There you go. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. All right, so John 15, I'm going to start in verse 12 and work our way to verse 27. And so there's a few just principles we're going to go over today, principles of kind of relating to one another, okay? Uh, So in 12 and 13, we find uh, the first principle, which is kind of the principle that Jesus talks about right off the bat, which is the principle of sacrifice in a friendship, in a loving relationship with one another. Look, look at what he says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, when I was studying, I had like enough material just on that verse to do a couple of sermons, right? Like you can do a whole thing about what, it, what Jesus means by obedience and commandments and what is he doing there? And, and it, the commandment is love. And so then therefore at that point, is it really a command or is it an invitation? And you can do all of this stuff. But for today, what we want to get to is that sacrifice is essential to genuine friendship and love. On some level, right? Verses 12 and 13 are a restatement of the new commandment that Jesus gives the first time back in chapter 13, verse 34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, as a side note, maybe when you read this, you you do what some of us do and we go, wait a minute, Jesus, greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. I thought the greatest love was to lay down your life for your enemies, Which one is it? Well, what's going on here is Jesus is saying that when you are in a friendship relationship, the kind of love that is the greatest in that relationship is that you lay your life down for your friend. So this isn't a contradiction. This is just an issue of translating an ancient language into modern English and getting a little bit mixed up. But if we look at the phrase, just as I have loved you, we see, a, we see the, the first principle there of sacrifice. And we know this because this is the way that Jesus loved these men, right? We, I mean, we know this from the story. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus loved these men and us, if we're his disciples, in this sacrificial way. So if Jesus is saying this is the new commandment, well, that means there was an old commandment. What's the old commandment? The old commandment was to love God with everything, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's still a good commandment. No one is saying that that commandment is abolished. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law and and embody the law. And so the old commandment was love God with everything we have, right? This is the story of the rich young ruler. What's the greatest commandment? Love your, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then we get the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's Jesus taking that commandment and using a story to expound and explain the commandment. Uh, but the new commandment actually takes us even further. And so often, this is what Jesus does with Old Testament commands. People think, oh, Old Testament God is angry, mean, and he's really, really religious. But New Testament Jesus is just amazing. But actually, New Testament Jesus is the same God as the Old Testament, and he takes what's said in the Old Testament and actually makes it even more difficult. 
right? The Old Testament, the old law said, love the Lord your God and treat your neighbors yourself. The new law says, lay your life down for your friends. That's more difficult. Jesus takes these Old Testament commandments further than they already were, right? He says many times, you've heard it said, but now I tell you. So what's an example of that? You've heard it said, uh, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at someone with lust in your eyes, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you think angrily about a person, you're liable for murder, right? Jesus makes it way more difficult because he goes to the heart. And so his sacrifice is our model. Jesus calls for sacrificial love in his own body, which is the church. Now, maybe you know that Jesus exemplified this sacrificial love most poignantly, most visibly in his cross, right? Where he sacrificed his life for those of us who love him, for those who are called to him. But Jesus exemplified this kind of sacrificial love, the spirit of sacrificial love, even before the cross, and, and if you've been in John with us for a number of weeks, you, you know this text, because back in John 13, right before he gives the new commandment, Jesus tries to restore Judas. And this is an example of this kind of love. He, he goes to restore Judas, attempts to, even though he knows Judas is bent on betraying him. Think of the sacrifice. He knows this man is going to betray me and give me over to the ones who will kill me, but I'm still going to go after him. That's a kind of love. And so you'll remember that Jesus is seated next to Judas uh, on purpose. He, he seats Judas next to him. It's a place of honor at dinner. Jesus, even in this moment of knowing that betrayal is coming, dips the bread, the morsel, right, into the and hands it to Judas, which is a very specific symbol of an offer of friendship, like a handshake would be maybe for us, that you're, uh, you know someone's about to betray you and you offer a genuine hand of uh, fellowship. And, and so Jesus was offering restoration to Judas in that moment. And in our text today, in John 15, 12, and 13 in particular, Jesus is officially making sacrifice an essential characteristic of the kind of love that God is pulling for among believers. This is what God expects to see. And, and, and do your best to not hear this all through the lens of obedience. Obedience is important, but relationship has to drive obedience or it's just religion. So when God is commanding us to love one another, think of it more as an invitation into something better. That this is an aspect of the church family that... You know, if you've never been a part of a church family and you don't have any knowledge of what church is, you might not know about this part, right? Until maybe you, you, you begin being around some Christians and you get sick or, or, or something happens and, and you need help. And then you experience a different kind of Christian love than maybe you knew about before. Like, like I know that if we went around this room, some of you have been in this church together for decades, Right. And so I know if we went around this room and asked the question, and, and there's many people who aren't in the room today, but who are maybe watching or, or, or who are part of our church family, who I could ask the question, how have you seen sacrificial love in this body of people? They'd be able to tell you stories, more than one story. Well, you know, when I was sick or I lost work or whatever, so-and-so brought me some food or they did this or they sacrificed in order to be a part of the community with me. I've heard some of those stories. I've been a part of some of those stories. I've been a recipient of some of those stories in this church, right? And so this is what it means to love as Christ loved us. 
This is what it means. And it's what Jesus, remember, our Lord is commanding of us. This is what he's telling us. And I just always want to point this out. But look at how beautiful of a command it is, right? It's not something difficult or mean-spirited. He's not doing it to lord it over us and hold his thumb over us and say, you do what I say because. He's inviting us as our Lord into something better. Remember the, the, the picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. What does he say? You call me rabbi and Lord, and you're right. That's what I am. Now watch what I'm about to do. And so Jesus' command is to love one another, which means his command is predicated. And hear this part. This command is predicated on us living our lives as part of a community where this can actually happen. You want to know an argument for church membership? It's right here. How are you going to love one another as Christ loved unless you're part of a community of faith where that can actually happen? If you're a Lone Ranger Christian, you can't do this or receive this. And so like Jesus' command uh, over your life is that you would be part of a community of people where you would love sacrificially and listen and be loved sacrificially. This is a hard one for us. We're Americans. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Rugged individuals. Well, you know what? Sometimes you get hurt and you need help. And, and so other Christians then are able to obey this command by you receiving. This is... The rules of the church, right? So many people want to know, what are the rules of Christianity? This is it. Love one another. This is it. Who, and, and who wouldn't want this? Like when you paint this word picture, who doesn't want this really? I don't know of anyone who doesn't want this at the deepest place in their soul, but it requires sacrifice. So it's hard. So that's the first principle, sacrifice. The second principle is in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, the, again, the temptation is to do what uh, many good Bible teachers have done uh, and, and basically talk about this verse as if it speaks only of obedience. And certainly obedience is, is part of that conversation, right? But this verse also has something else in there if we'll look from just a bit of a different perspective, a different angle. In Jesus' words here, we are also seeing uh, what many would call a principle, a lot of the commentators I read called it mutuality, which is kind of an old school word uh, that we don't use in our, in our modern kind of nomenclature. But just think of it as sameness, equality, right? I know that word has a bunch of baggage with it now, but think of sameness, Sameness in mind and spirit. You are of one mind. Uh, There's a famous text, right? There's one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so uh, a sameness in mind and spirit. And so Jesus' disciples, you and I, if you know and follow him, the mutual friends of Jesus, we obey him, we follow his lead because we share the same spirit in us. That we've been reborn and given a new heart. And that new heart wants what Jesus wants for us. And so as a result, we share the same outlook and goals, right? I hope you have at least one relationship like this in your life, whether it's your spouse or your best friend or whoever it is, but that you have a truly close friend who agrees in heart with you, right? I see some people looking around the room right now. They will, these friends will disagree, but they have the same thing in mind. Like, I know when I get into an argument with my wife, which I know is shocking, but when I get into an argument with my wife, I know that at the end of the day, we both want the best for one another. Like, I know that she wants me to be the best version of me 
that I could possibly be. And so I have to, you know, swallow my pride and repent and listen to her because she has, she's, we're of one heart and mind, right? And so Paul in Philippians 2 describes his protege Timothy as being of a kindred spirit. Literally, that he and Timothy are one-souled. Like, I, I was thinking about using the example of soulmates, but that has a lot of weird romanticized baggage to it. But if you remove all that stuff, the romantic part of it, that are like, oh, I'm going to find my one soulmate out there, which is a lie. If you remove all of that stuff, soulmates make sense. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You have friends that you feel like soulmates with. Like, we, we just get, we're just on the same wavelength. We're, we're synced up like Wi-Fi, like it's, right? And so this sameness of heart that we're talking about here is the basis, if you know your Old Testament, of the relationship between David and Jonathan. The first book, the book of 1 Samuel records the beginning of this relationship uh, after David killed Goliath. As soon, this is talking about David, or talking about Jonathan. As soon as he had finished speaking to Paul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is a kind of friendship that the Bible is talking about. The Bible says their souls were knit together. Do you think they would sacrifice for one another? Yes. And so back to John 15, verse 15 of John 15 tells us that this sameness of heart is encouraged. It's promoted by the invitation to one another into one another's personal stuff. You know what I'm talking about, right? That stuff that only some people get into. Those friendships are on a different level than other friendships. And we could go on a whole thing kind of from the, the, the realm of counseling about boundaries. And you can't do that with everybody, but you got to do it with somebody. But, but listen to how Jesus invites these guys. Remember, these close 11 guys at this point into his personal life. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, this is massively important. Because if you're reading this, and you know and you love Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you're at this table. You're not on the outside. You're on the inside. You're a disciple of Jesus. And so he's, he's saying to, to these guys and, and to us, I don't consider you beneath me. You're not beneath me. I consider you my friends. And the way you know that is I'm sharing all this personal stuff with you. I'm letting you read my journal. What the Father shows me, I show you. You have the password to my emails. Like You know everything there is to know. Jesus shares the deepest thoughts of his heart with his disciples. And what does that foster? A sameness among them. Imperfectly executed for sure, but a sameness among them. And so in the culture of that day, slaves and servants uh, were considered way, way beneath the dignity of knowing any of the master's business, knowing any of his stuff. Slaves are actually, in some cultures uh, in this time, on the same level as like an inanimate object. Like they're, they're an agricultural tool. And so masters... Like, you don't share your deepest desires with your shovel, right? I mean, maybe some of you do in like a weird, weak moment where you're talking to inanimate objects. But that's not a normal thing to do. And in the same way, as weird as you think that is, this is how it would be for a master to share with his servants. 
right? Think of your employers sharing with you all the, all the insider secret stuff about the business you work for. Not normal. Right? That doesn't happen. But Jesus refuses to play those power games in his friendships. He refuses to withhold information in order to maintain a position of power with these guys. He says, no, you are equal to me. This is what love is. When he calls you his friend, he's not kidding with you. He's not toying with you. And he's not allowing you to think that you're closer than you are. Jesus is embodying what he's inviting us into. And it's kind of scary, right? This is really, really, really hard to do. It's, it's so hard to let our guard down and let others in. Because what? What if they betray us? What if they betray us? With this insider information, well, who knows, you know, who knows all about what that feels like? It's Jesus, right? Remember Judas betrayed him with a kiss, no less. And so Jesus knows what that's like, and he's demonstrating for us that it's still a worthy risk in order to live into this life of fruit. You need this kind of intimacy in friendships more than we need to be autonomous from all constraint. This is, again, one of those times when I just want to let the, let, just challenge the, the message that we're being told, the water that we are swimming in, especially the younger you get, the water you're swimming in is standing opposed to what the Bible is inviting you. This is a classic moment of asking, how is it working out for us? Right? What we're being told by our culture is what? Don't let anyone get close. Don't root yourself in any kind of community. Move all over the place. Don't let yourself be in any kind of long-term relationship that weighs you down. You've got to just do what you want to do. Don't do anything that requires you to be really known. We're told this is the path to the good life. And I see so many people live this way. My friends, they keep this community over here and this community over here and this community over here. And they don't want the world to touch because then I'll be accountable. Then I'll have to be intimate with somebody. Then all of that. But then at the same time, what do we look around and we see? We see crazy high levels of anxiety and depression and loneliness that's off the charts. And so I asked myself, is this working out? The answer is no, it's not. And so maybe, just maybe, there's something to Jesus' example here of sharing intimacy with one another that actually makes us vulnerable. It actually makes us vulnerable, but that also, and please hear me on this, it's also the only path to the kind of healing that so often comes when we reveal our feelings to one another. We push through that fear that our, that our confidence might be broken. And you know what? It will be, because we're all imperfect. And so we push through that fear that our confidence will be broken, which again requires that we be the kind of community where that part of trust that kind of trust is part of who we are. And so that like Jesus, we share, but we also, we never shame. Now you notice Jesus never shames his disciples. He teaches them, he admonishes them, surely, but he doesn't shame them. This is where, for me, this is for me, where I need to practice the most repentance in my life. Right? It's so easy to play these little power games that we like to play. 
but, but it, this is not what Jesus has for us. So that, the first principle is sacrifice. The second one is kind of this equality, the sameness. And the third principle of friendship is what we might call advancement. I couldn't think of a good word here, but advancement might be the one that helps. John 15, verse 16. Listen to Jesus here. You did not choose me. Now, you didn't choose Jesus. This is what he's saying to his disciples. But I chose you. And I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, so what do we see in this verse? What we see is Jesus' desire to help his friends succeed. He wants them to be all that God wants for them. And so he's committed to their fulfilling the ultimate uh, calling in their own life of, of becoming people of love, joy, and peace, who then, when he gives them the Great Commission in a little while, go out and as a result of becoming these people of love, joy, and peace, they see God move in the lives of others around them who become the same kind of people. And they start these little communities of faith, these friendships of faith we call churches all over the world. And we're in that lineage today. And so Jesus wants his friends, he wants you and I, he wants his disciples to be successful in your spiritual life. Like, have you ever thought that Jesus is cheering for you in your spiritual life? When you sit down, you're like, man, I haven't done my Bible reading in six months, in six weeks, in six days, whatever it is. And you're like, oh, I'm so ashamed. Jesus isn't sitting up there like, yeah, I know, I've been waiting. That's not his posture towards us. His posture towards you is the same posture that I'm going to have when little legacy starts taking her first steps and she stumbles and falls. What am I going to be like? Oh, two steps, that's it? Right? No, I'm going to be like, two steps? I'm going to probably call some of you. She took two steps. Amazing. Let's have a party. And this is the posture of Jesus. This is the posture of God, your father. Because he's cheering for you. He wants you to succeed. He called you to that. He had dreams in his mind before he called you, and he's cheering you on to see those come to fruition. True friends, since we're like Jesus and we're learning to be like Jesus, true friends, we do the same. We rejoice in each other's successes. When we're sharing these intimate things with one another, we're rejoicing in the successes and we're focusing on those successes, right? Listen again to the story of Jonathan and David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, you may not know the significance of the stuff that, that Jonathan gives David here, but Jonathan gave David the items that represent Jonathan's own station in life. Jonathan is royal. He's the son of Saul the king. He's heir to the throne, but he commits himself to make God's anointed next king, David here, king. And in the same way, and even more so, Jesus, whose station in life is far greater than ours, is committed to your success by emptying himself of that glory and giving it to you and calling you into the same life that he shares with God the Father. He is committed to your spiritual success. Your success in fulfilling the calling of your life, which is to become a person of love and joy and peace. He's committed to that success because he has chosen us to be his friends. And so also in the same way as imitators of Jesus, we are to be committed to the ultimate fulfillment of our friends, to, to be committed to helping them experience all that God intends for me. You know what that means? That means you have to be pursuing God as well. And so God has put us 
in this really amazing, almost positive peer pressure situation where in our desire to help one another, we become helped because we're giving and we're receiving this kind of love. I, I just, I loved this example. This was uh, a quote from a Charles Swindoll uh, sermon. Actually, I don't know if it was a sermon or like an article or something, but it's from Charles Swindoll. And he says this. This is funny and I love it. Do you ever feel like a frog? Right? The, the green thing that jumps. Frogs feel slow and low, ugly and putty, drooped and pooped. I know, one told me. The frog feeling comes when you want to be bright, but you're dumb. When you want to share, but you're selfish. When you want to be thankful, but you're filled with resentment. When you want to be great, but you are small. When you want to care, but you are indifferent. Yes, at one time or another, each of us has found himself or herself on a lily pad, floating down the great river of life, frightened and disgusted, but too afraid to budge. And so we all know how the fairy tale goes. Once upon a time, there was a frog, except he was really not a frog. He was a prince. He looked and felt like a frog on the outside. And so the wicked witch had cast a spell on him, and only the kiss of a beautiful maiden could save him. So there he sat, an unkissed prince in frog form. But miracles happened, and one day a beautiful maiden gave him a great big smack. Crash, boom, zap. I'm reading a quote. Suddenly he was a handsome prince. And of course, they lived happily ever after. So we ask the question, what is the task of the community of faith? Kissing frogs. I love it, right? Allowing, uh, kissing frogs and allowing ourselves to be kissed in this way. We are to make one another kings and queens because that is who we are. So to go back to the word picture picture in our text in John 15 of branches and vines, how many of us as branches in the body of Christ have not ever reached our full potential in Christ because no one has ever encouraged us. And I, I have a life lesson in the azalea bushes by my house going on with this right now. There's two azalea bushes that are out there that are completely dried up because I forgot to set up the watering for them. And this summer it's been hot. And so about six weeks ago, I finally set the watering up. And you know what? Both of those azalea plants have tiny little green shoots coming out the bottom now. They're still alive. Now, there's other ones that get better rain or for whatever reason are flourishing, and those ones are looking even better. And there's a couple of them I noticed this morning on my way over here, I guess the Holy Spirit pointed my eyes at them, that are starting to produce blossoms. And, and, and so I wonder, if we think about branches and, and vines, how many of us are maybe like that dried up one. There's just a little green shoot, and all we need is some water and some love and some care, and eventually the blossoms will start to happen. Imagine, dream with me, right? What, what would the vibrancy and the life that would begin to be part of our church family be if we simply made it a regular practice? And some of us are doing this, but we can always do it more. Make it a regular pra practice to intentionally encourage and pull for one another and like tell each other that. But what, what if you knew that this community... What if you knew that this family of God was pulling for you? Now, in order to know that, though, you're going to have to engage in community. It's a two-way street. You're going to have to be part of the community to know that it's pulling for you. But, but what could become of that? That's a question I just want to leave you with. Now, Jesus, in his wisdom, right, knowing to who he was speaking then and now, he made these ideas not optional, but he made them commands. I love that. 
The, the, these principles that we just talked about are framed by the same command in two places, verse 12 and verse 17. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Then verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And so, so maybe you hear that and you think, well, why does he command what's impossible? Why does he do that? That love is this emotion that I can't control, right? Well, think again about the context of Jesus' words here. And I'm not even going to talk about how that's just a wrong view of love. Think about the context of Jesus' words here. His language in this section is just filled up with the concept of abiding or remaining in him, of being with him. In verse 7, we read this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in my love. Finally, in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the fruit we've been talking about that God desires for you to bear a lot of, right? The fruit of abiding is the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one listed in that list of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is love. So Jesus was abiding with the Father in the Father, and he loves his own, which is us, and so the same should be true of us. That sacrifice and equality and cheering one another on are part of the rhythms of our life together. As we abide, we will love the unlovely. And all of us, in case no one has told you, are unlovely when it comes to our spiritual life. All of us have room to grow. We will be in love, we will have these loving relationships with one another in the community of faith, the local church, this local church. And as we abide in Christ, we realize that apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. If you, if you want a picture of this, right, go, go to a, any weed or plant that's a vine and cut the vine and see what happens to the part that's after the cut. That's you when you're not abiding in Jesus. So as we abide with Jesus, realizing that apart from him we can do nothing, we both love the branches like one another, and as a fellow branch, we learn to not only give love, but we also learn to receive the love of Jesus through the vine and also through those around us who are learning to do the same. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us on Sunday mornings a visible picture of your body, your presence in the world. This is it. We look around this room and we see different faces of all different shades and backgrounds and, and, and different ideas about the world and dreams and hopes. And we know that you have bound us together by your blood into a family. And this is your presence in the world so that when the world asks, what is God like? We should look around this room and say, this is what he is like. And, and may we be a community, a people, a church where this kind of sacrificial, cheering one another, equal parts love is just who we are. That we are willing to, to give and to receive this love in a way that just makes others wonder what is going on there and that they want to be part of it. We ask, Father, that you would draw people to yourself through our church, through relationships that we form with those who are yet to know and love you, that they would be drawn into relationship with us and into this place, into this room that we're standing in now where they could perhaps see this picture that we get to see every week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.